Beautiful. Thank you, Susan. I was realizing as I was putting the sermon together that uh, Hubert's party is right after this, and I was wondering why we weren't making him preach this sermon. (laughs) And then I realized you don't really have to do anything anymore, (laughs) which is really kind of terrible for us. Why are we celebrating that? I I don't get it. I know I say this a lot, but it bears repeating. Jesus loves you. The question for this morning is, how? How does he love you? What role is he fulfilling by loving you? Who is he that loves us? And how does who he is affect or inform how he loves us? For those of you who know me, which by now is pretty much everybody, you're probably not surprised that I start with a question. Jesus did it too, all the time, hundreds of them. Uh, Why does this generation ask for a sign? What did Moses command you? If the salt loses its saltiness, can it be made salty again? If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? What can man give in exchange for his soul? Can you drink the cup I drink? Judas? Are you really betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Heavy questions. He's always trying to drag people into conversation, involve them, their thoughts, their hearts, their perspectives, their backgrounds into his message of the kingdom. He wasn't just using a rhetorical device. His questions arose from the conviction that we all have a responsibility to speak, to get involved in the ministry of proclamation that it's our job as disciples to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything Christ commanded us, right? Great commission. Revelation tells us that we, all of us, are a kingdom and priests, a kingdom of priests. We're all priests. That's why Jesus worked so hard to train us, to make us ready for the task. Have you ever wondered why he had a three-year ministry? Why he didn't just come and die and get it over with and go back home. He's not the only one with a job here. We have one too. And we needed some training. We needed some discipleship. So he called a group of people around him and he named them disciples and he spent his entire career mentoring them and preparing them. All that happens in the book of Acts only happens because of the training that happens in the Gospels, right? The Gospels make the Acts of the Apostles possible. We as Baptists have a way of talking about this, the priesthood of all believers, that we're all priests in service to God our Father. See, there's this gap, this chasm between the two kingdoms, between God and the world he's trying to save. And it's our job as priests to stand in that gap and to bridge that chasm, to be go-betweens between God and the world. That's why Christ trained the disciples, because that job, the job of priest, is not so easy. 
Now, this idea of priesthood, of course, is somewhat of a development to how priesthood worked in the Old Testament. The office of priest originally came out of a very practical need to have a, have a group of people in every generation who were ready to explain how to be restored to God, which is to say, how to be the family of God. In the earliest days, priesthood was, in fact, a family matter. Your priest would have been your eldest brother. The oldest brothers were the first priests. It was their role. It was their chore. So in Genesis, the first fight ever recorded, right, was over a priestly dispute between brothers, between Cain and Abel. Cain was mad because Abel made a better sacrifice than he did. Abel knew Cain's job better than Cain did. When Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, he lost the right to be the spiritual leader of his clan, to be the priest, which made him mad. Abraham takes his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves, up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him there. And nobody objects because Isaac was young and young boys had to be trained to become priests. It wasn't unusual to learn how to perform sacrifices and what they meant. The eldest son would apprentice to the father, so Isaac would often have gone up to the hilltop with his dad to make the sacrifice. Well, over time, Israel stopped making sacrifices on just any old hill. Once the tabernacle moved to Jerusalem, Zion became the only place where you could make a sacrifice. And so it became difficult for the eldest son from every family, from every tribe, from all over the country to continually come up to Jerusalem. So they found a new way. The Levites would now do the work the elder, elder brothers used to do. According to the book of Numbers, the Levites would now be dedicated to the work of the elder brother. They would replace them as priests. But even after that, every now and again, eldest sons would still be dedicated to the service of the Lord. Hannah dedicated her firstborn son, Samuel, to God. Now, why did she think to do that? How did she know that Eli, the priest, would even take him? It was still in their cultural memory that the eldest son was the priest of the family and dedicated to the service of God for the family. And so, like Abraham mentored Isaac, Eli mentored Samuel, and Samuel mentored King David, and so on, and so on. Mentorship is just natural in a family, passing on what you have learned. It's the frame of family that makes discipleship make sense. Okay, so at this point, if you have your bulletin and you see the title of this sermon, uh, you have to be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with the tithe? Priests were a tithe. They didn't pay the tithe. They were a tithe. They were the portion of the family that was set aside or dedicated to God and to his service. For an Israelite, all of life revolved around the idea of a tithe, a sacrifice, a partitioning, a portioning, a separation, a setting apart. As early as Genesis 2, uh, the first tithe or setting apart was uh, the Sabbath, Right? God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And he set that day apart. He Sabbathed it. He seventhed it. He tithed it. And so throughout Jewish history, they have always tithed 
or seventh or sacrificed a day of their week as a way of sanctifying or making holy the whole week. Giving the seventh of their time to God restores or redeems the whole week to God. The sacrifice of the part redeems the whole. Do me a favor and remember that. It's going to be important. That's how the sacrificial system worked, the part for the whole. But there are a lot of other ways the early Israelites tithed or seventhed or set apart things to God. Okay, for example, the actual tithe. Money was an important resource, so they dedicated all of it by giving part of it, the tithe. Not to be too graphic, but your procreative abilities and your children were dedicated to God by the sacrificial partitioning act of circumcision. Certain towns were set aside to God as cities of refuge. Parts of fields were set aside to God to feed the homeless and the hungry, and so on, and so on. All the most important things in your life were devoted to God by means of the tithe. It was your concrete way of expressing your love for him and your devotion to him, sacrificing the part to redeem the whole. What's important to you? Or maybe better, what's important to you that feels broken? Are there some people, some situations, some dynamics, some relationships that need to be redeemed? You can hide those things. You can give a portion of that, whatever it is, to God so that he can redeem the whole thing. How can you tithe your marriage? How can you tithe your relationship with your kids, your friendships, your job, your house? How do you tithe your own heart? How do you tithe your memories, the way you talk to yourself, your inner life? How can you portion those things and give a piece of them to God. The question is, how do we tithe those things? How do we tithe that? If that's something you struggle with, don't worry. The things that God calls us to, he equips us for. And that includes wisdom. On the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and delivers this beautiful sermon. And he starts with this idea, God is equipping us. All of us. The prophet Joel, about 800 years earlier, talked about a time to come when it wouldn't just be him and Isaiah and Ezekiel having visions and dreaming dreams. One day, all God's people would be doing that. But what Joel put in the future, Peter put in the present. And so he quotes Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. You have a prophetic gift. It just means truth-telling. So use that prophetic gift. Tell yourself some truth. What parts of your life need God's redeeming presence? How do you tithe those things? What portion of them can you give him to redeem the whole? And I want to ask another question in relation to that. And remember, Jesus likes questions, so it's okay. We said that the faith of the people of God revolved around the tithe. 
the sacrificing, the portioning, the Sabbath thing, the seventh thing, of everything that was most important to them. Whatever was important, they would figure out a way of giving a part of that to God to sanctify or to redeem the whole thing. The tithe redeems the whole. So how about us? Fab. We're important to us, right? How do we tithe this? How do we tithe us? The priesthood. The elder brother, the Levites, the priests were a tithe and an offering to God. The group of people through whom the whole nation was sanctified and set apart for God. I've known a lot of people in this room for a lot of years. And so I know some of the priests in your lives who have walked these halls with you and taught in your Sunday school rooms and led you in choir, led you on mission, led your kids, led you from this very pulpit. And I have those people too. They stood in the gap for us. They interceded for us. They were a bridge for us to God. We have the tithe here. We have always had the tithe. The challenge I want to give us this morning is this. Let us do that more. Let more of us stand in the gap. Let us disciple more, lead more, with more intentionality, more focus, more hands and feet, more of our time and effort, more of our spirit and willingness to follow Christ. We already go beyond the tithe in other areas. There was a time not long ago when just a few of us went on mission trips. Now you can't turn around without somebody inviting you on a mission trip, right? Every week in Sunday school, somebody brings up how powerful and formative missions have been on their lives and their families' lives. Every senior recognition, the youth always talk about how the missions were the most powerful thing for them in in youth group. We took the thing that we were doing in part, missions, and we started to do it fully. Discipleship. Mentorship. Meaningful, intentional, spiritual growth is not just for the few. It was in Joel's day, but things were terrible in Joel's day. Let's maybe not copy that. He was so looking forward to the day when all God's children would have their own visions and dream their own dreams. This might be the next stage for us. What we did with missions, allowing the tithe to become the whole offering, we can do with discipleship. We can do with us. The tithe gets God's foot in the door, and that's great. It's a wonderful strategic way of getting God involved in the first place and giving him a voice and a presence in our lives. But let's not leave him in the doorway. Let's invite him all the way in. Israel just had a tithe, a portion of its people set aside to envision and to dream, but now the whole people of God are set aside for that task. Now everybody is in Isaiah. Now everybody is in Ezekiel. Now we're all in the role of Joshua and Samuel and Eli and Moses. That's why the New Testament writers are so excited. Because these days are going to be better than the good old days. 
because now we're all priests. The real question is, how, right? How do we do this? How do we, as a whole body, step into the priestly role that God has set aside for us? How do we, as a whole church, do with discipleship what we did with missions? How do we move from having the blessing to being the blessing? How do we become the tithe? And, of course, I'm not going to answer that. It would be very silly of me in a sermon about how we all have visions and dreams to tell you what your visions and dreams have to be. But I do want to ask the question, and I want to ask you to ask the question. When you're together in church council or commission meetings or your Sunday school classes or Wednesday nights or choir or staff meeting. Do me a favor and ask these two questions. How do we tithe what we're, what, we're, what we're doing? How do we get God involved in that? And two, how do we move from having the tithe to being the tithe? From having the blessing to being the blessing. This church has had its tithe. Powerful people of faith who have loved us and shown us the way. How do we move from having that to being that? The number of roles that Christ has in the New Testament is massive. He's Lord, he's creator, he's Messiah, he's king. He's called everything from servant to God himself and everything in between. And it can be difficult to know how to relate to Jesus sometimes because of that. It can be confusing. And the book of Hebrews doesn't help. It's not like the rest of the New Testament. It's kind of a minority report compared to the rest of the New Testament. Melchizedek, for example, doesn't show up in a whole lot of books. He's in Hebrews. There's a lot of teaching on apostasy that there really isn't in the other parts of the New Testament. It quotes from the Old Testament more than most other books, except for Revelation. But the thing that probably sets Hebrews apart the most from the rest of the New Testament is this idea. Christ is our high priest. He is in the role of our go-between Christ is our bridge back to God, the one who stands in the gap for us. So why is it the several chapters of Hebrews are busy proving this point when the rest of the New Testament is pretty silent about it? Because the rest of the New Testament is not silent about it. To begin with, every book in the New Testament treats Christ as our go-between. Every book in the New Testament treats him as our bridge back to God, every single book, including Philemon. And in the second place, they all treat Christ as son, between son of God and son of man, born and firstborn. And every time Jesus calls God Father, well, that's most of the New Testament and nearly all of the Gospels. The thing is that prior to Christianity, if you use the phrase son of God, you only ever meant one group, Israel. They're God's children. And so when Christ comes, he has to distinguish his sonship from theirs, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you know, that son, that whoever believes in his name shall not perish but have everlasting life. He's that son because all the other people of God are also sons. Every time scripture calls Jesus son, it's calling him our brother and particularly our elder brother, the firstborn from among many brothers to quote Romans. 
Every time he's son, he's our elder brother. And every time he's our elder brother, he's our priest. And every time he's our priest, he's our tithe. He's the tithe. He is the tithe. The part that redeems the whole. The son that was dedicated to sanctify the whole family. For the whole family. As a representative of the whole family. He didn't pay the tithe. He was the tithe. Jesus is the Sabbath rest. He is the circumcision of our hearts. And he is our priestly tithe. So that all his brothers and sisters would also be sanctified with him and set apart for the family of God. He's the sacrifice that redeems the whole. So going back to the opening question, how does Christ love us? He loves us as brother. He's our elder brother. Somebody had to be our priest. Somebody had to stand in the gap for us. Somebody had to bridge the chasm. Somebody had to be the sacrifice. Not give the sacrifice. Be the sacrifice. Be the tithe. Jesus, our big brother, was our tithe. That was his job. That is how he loved us. And now it's our turn. Here's the thing. When we talk about discipleship, you know, following Christ and being like Christ, we get kind of the philosopher's gaze and we get very contemplative and we stare at our navels and uh, we, we act like uh, these things are very complex and mystical, right? Now, there are complexities to Scripture. There are mysteries in Scripture. But these aren't them. If any of you ever grew up with a big brother or a big sister, you already know how to follow someone and be like someone. You already know how discipleship works. I am the second son in my family. I have an elder brother. His name is Rick. To this day, if he likes a song, I can't help it. I am going to like it too. If he tells a joke he thinks is funny, I start laughing before he's even done telling it. I kind of hate it. But it's true. Younger brothers follow their older brothers. It's in our DNA to follow our older brothers. Van doesn't think so, but... <laughs> Have you ever seen this on the playground? You know, we're, we're, we're going around following our big brothers and sisters like little lemmings, you know. Oh, I want to swing too. You're, you're going to swing, I want to swing. <laughs> it's as natural as breathing for us to dress like them. And to talk like them, adopt their mannerisms, and to follow them. We call it discipleship, but it's really just letting our big brother be our big brother. The idea isn't mysterious. Now, it's not easy, but it's not hard to understand. Discipleship is natural for us. It is in our DNA. The problem is we don't always treat Jesus as family. Family is the frame in which discipleship makes sense. He's your big brother. Go where he goes. Do what he does. And what does he do? 
He's a priest. He stands in the gap. He bridges the chasm. He's the tithe, fully dedicated, that dedicates the whole. This church has had its priests, people who have loved us and stood in the gap for us. This town needs priests. Huntington needs people who will love them and stand in the gap for them. They need a church, a group of people, disciples who are totally devoted to God and prepared for works of service. Our communities are struggling. There aren't enough people standing in the gap right now. Some, not enough. There's not yet the tithe, the tipping point, if you will, of people bridging the gap for them, sanctifying them, and setting them apart for God. And there is a tipping point. All we need is a tithe to get God's foot in the door, right? We can do that. We can be that. We can be the tithe, too. If we're going to follow Christ, our big brother, to be like our big brother, then let us be good big brothers and big sisters to our community, like Jesus was for us, and lead and learn how to lead our brothers and sisters who are lost back home. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for my family. Uh, I get to stand in a room full of people who, who love me. What a blessing. God, you have blessed us. You have brought so many people into our lives who have done amazing works in our own life. God, help us to turn that around and to become that because there are an awful lot of people around us who need it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.